What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome to the Friday edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN, a unique program in all of uh, broadcasting, not just Catholic broadcasting, but all of broadcasting, a Catholic radio network that carries a program just for non-Catholics. If that's you, if you've got a question about the Catholic faith, maybe you don't know who to ask, we can help you with that. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Catholics are invited to call in as well because sometimes you folks have a question posed to you by perhaps a co-worker, a family member, uh, somebody that you met at the uh, grocery, and um, you're thinking, well, I am a Catholic, but I ought to know the answer to that, but I don't have it right off the top of my head. We can help you as well. 833-288-EWTN. If you're listening outside of North America, please dial the number 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can send us a, an email 24 hours a day. CTC at EWTN.com is the address. CTC at EWTN.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Gabensky is our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Just put your question in the comments box, if you would, please. Hit send, and then Jeff will see it. He'll say, aha, time to get that to the studio, and then uh, we'll get it on, hopefully, today's program. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Ann. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, my friend? Oh, I'm doing decent. Thank you so much. Perhaps weekend plans for you? Um, well, I would like to think that I could rest, and uh, but there's no rest for the grandfather. Apparently not. No. We're going to lead off here with a, a question from Mary in Boise, Idaho, listening on the great Salt and Light Catholic Radio. She says, thank you, Tom and Dr. Anders. Our OCIA class, or RCIA, if you will, is blessed with a rich bouquet of non-Catholics, including baptized, unbaptized, Trinitarian Christians, non-Trinitarian Christians, and nuns, N-O-N-E-S. So if you were to address this class on the question of who is Jesus and should he be important to me, what would you say? Hmm. That's, That's a good question. Isn't that great? That's a good question. So there's several ways I could answer this. You know, we're, we're here to represent in a catechism class the teaching of the Catholic Church about Christ. So I think that where I would probably start is with the teaching of Christ here and the, the lived example of Christ. Christ is the person um, whose teaching and life example reveal to me the the ultimate in humanity and and all you orthodox catholics don't worry i'm getting to divinity okay i'm not saying he's just a human right he okay. is human but he's all not right. only a human and uh, that the human life of christ represents to me humanity lived to the utmost this is a, a kind of a total self-donation uh, to the ideal of uh, love of the other love of the poor love of the marginalized and the willingness to sacrifice everything for the dignity of the person, right? And that that message has transformed society profoundly. Um, and before the coming of Christ, 
That was not a message that resonated with the world. You won't find that represented in uh, ancient Hellenistic literature, or Indian or Japanese, or Chinese literature. They don't have that ideal represented in the same way. Hmm. And, uh, and Christianity radically changed the world. And so things like respect for human rights, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, if you will, all of that flows out of the Catholic doctrine of the dig- dignity of persons, which was first exemplified for us in the life and teachings and actions of Christ. And so Catholics are people who, who are all about Jesus. We've aligned our lives with his vision of the world. And faith for us is not simply believing a list of propositions about Jesus, although it does entail that. It also is a commitment to try to come to see the world through Jesus's eyes. To, to put on the mind of Christ, St. Paul would say, and, uh, and to let it transform us. So that, that's where I would start. All right. Then Jesus is, of course, also embedded in the story of Israel. He is uh, the Messiah, the fulfillment of prophetic expectation of a king that would come and inaugurate the kingdom of God and effect this transformation of the world. And he's more than that. He is the incarnate Son of God, Uh, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, in whom not only do I find perfect humanity, but my salvation in God, and that through him I myself can be deified and united to the Father. Mary, thanks so much uh, for your question. Here's one now from Kendrick, who says, My mother is Catholic, however, my father was Episcopalian, and so I was raised in the Episcopal Church. How does one who was not raised in the Catholic Church enter the Church? Oh, pretty simple. Um, it, it, the, the, the bare minimum is to make a profession of faith in the Catholic Church, and if you are not baptized, to be baptized. If you are baptized already, to receive the Sacrament of Confirmation and Holy Communion. And that's, that's what you do. You make a profession of faith, get the sacraments, and you're in. Now, uh, for most people, the Church requires that you undergo some instruction in the faith before mm-hmm. you profess it. Mm-hmm. And there is a standard way of doing that called the Order of Christian Initiation for Adults, OCIA, formerly called RCIA. And uh, almost all parishes will have classes that you can attend to receive that instruction. And then, uh, generally speaking, you make that formal profession of faith around Easter, although depending on your situation, it could be a little bit different. Uh, So if you're interested in becoming Catholic, my recommendation is call up your local parish and say, I'd like to become Catholic. Uh, Please sign me up. Mother Angelic would say, start cracking. Start cracking. Get get cracking, I guess. Here's one now, a quick one from Tom in York, Pennsylvania. Uh, When Dr. Andrews says that Lutherans don't believe in the sacrifice of the Eucharist, what is he talking about? Yeah, thank you. So uh, Martin Luther was extremely clear many times over that he thought the greatest abomination of Catholicism, the thing he disliked most about the Catholic Church, was the doctrine that the Mass is a sacrifice. And uh, unfortunately, there are many Catholics today who are unaware that that is the teaching of the Church. Uh, But the Church does teach and has always taught that the Mass itself, that the the ritual action of the Mass, constitutes a sacrifice. And, uh, And as such, it can be offered to God for a particular intention. I mean, that's why uh, you, you, you've heard of mass stipends, and some the priest will always get up and say, well, I'm offering this mass yes. for so-and-so or such-and-such or such-and-such mm. an intention, or it's why he says in the mass, pray, my brethren, that your sacrifice and mine will be acceptable, because the rite of the liturgy is itself a distinct oblation that is offered uh, to God. All right, Tom in York, PA, thanks so much for your email. We'll get to the phones in just a moment here on EWTN's Call to Communion. 
It's called a communion here on EWTN because it is Friday. My personal recommendation on Fridays is call early because the phones tend to uh, fill up rather quickly and then you won't be able to get in and you'll have to uh, hold your question over until next week. Well, you wouldn't want to do that. Call now, 833-288-EWTN if you have a question for Dr. David Anders or perhaps you'd like to explain what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. 833 833- 288-3986. Let me tell you about a wonderful book available now from EWTN Publishing, Blue Collar Apologetics, How to Explain and Defend Catholic Teaching Using Common Sense, Simple Logic, and the Bible by our friend John Martinoni. What a wonderful book this is. Do check it out. It is available right now from EWTN Publishing. Check it out, EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. All right, if you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Let's begin with Joe in British Columbia, checking us out via podcasting. Hello, Joe. What's on your mind today, sir? Good day. Um, Recently, I was at the confessional, and the priest knows me and my situation. He talked about situational ethics, and so the example he gave was from Africa, where he's from, where one spouse has AIDS and the other does not. So what do they do? In this case, they use contraceptive. So in my case, he said, you have had the death of a child. You have seven children right now. So in your case, if your conscience allows it, it would be the situational ethic. Um, now, with the, my, my wife is really afraid of becoming pregnant. So anyways, so I just wanted to get your opinion, <laughs> and uh, my wife wanted your opinion as well. Okay, thanks. This. I appreciate the question. So the teaching of the Catholic Church on this issue is black and white and unambiguous. Uh, it is that every action, which, whether in anticipation of the conjugal act or in its accomplishment or in the development of its natural consequences, proposes, whether as an end or a means, to render procreation impossible is intrinsically evil. Right? Wow. That's Pope Paul VI in the Encyclical Humanae Vitae, yes. which taught the restated the 2,000-year tradition of the Church on this question of contraception, which is intrinsically immoral and, and never listed under any circumstances. Um, and the, the idea that an, an intrinsically immoral act could become moral because the circumstances of the act changed is not something that the Catholic Church teaches. So you were, you were misled in the confessional. Um, that being said, your situation is serious, and uh, you definitely stand in need of pastoral solicitude and care and help in all kinds of ways. Um, and, of course, you do know that the Church permits natural family planning, which is a form of, um, of uh, periodic abstinence together with conjugal union at times when uh, the woman is not fertile. And if, if followed rigorously and scientifically, it has a success rate that is better than other methods of, of uh, spacing births. I'll put it better than contraceptive okay. methods. Right. Okay. Um, and, but uh, there are situations where, you know, if you say, look, we, are, we have a situation where we can absolutely not become pregnant and we don't want to take that risk, you are not obligated to take the risk. I mean, there are, there are couples who practice 
lengthy periods of abstinence for that reason, right? Mm-hmm. But but in terms of having recourse to contraception, the church's teaching is absolutely clear that it's not permissible under any circumstance. All right, Joe, is that helpful for you? It is, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. You are most welcome. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. Looks like we have three lines open at the moment. 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. All right, let's go now to uh, Miranda in Nashville watching us today on YouTube. Hey, Miranda, what's on your mind today? Hello. um, I am Catholic, but I have a question um, if most Protestants believe this, or only some, and it sounds absolutely ridiculous to me, this rapture nonsense, this, that the earth is going to be the new heaven, and that people are going to be raised up like Mary in, in the clouds and to the heaven. I don't know, it, it was just, he was going on really fast, and I thought, this is a bunch of nonsense, and I was just wondering how many Protestants actually believe this, and, and if you could just clarify and condense it, what this is actually all about. Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So I, I need to unpack several ideas. You, you named several things, and some of them are Catholic beliefs, and some of them are not Catholic beliefs. So the rapture, the doctrine of the rapture, is a doctrine that not all Protestants believe, but some Protestants believe. Um, and typically you'll find it among fundamentalist Baptists and in, independent fundamentalists, um, and you won't find it anywhere in Protestant history until the 19th century. So it's a fairly recent uh, invention. It was invented in the Plymouth Brethren movement by a man named John Nelson Darby, uh, and it spread through uh, United States fundamentalism through a publication called the Schofield Reference Bible, and a couple of institutions like Dallas Theological Seminary and Moody Bible Institute were major proponents of this. So it has a you know pretty wide following in some segments of sort of ultra-conservative fundamentalist Protestantism, but it's not widely held beyond that. So, you know, your, your, your main line Episcopalians and, and uh, Methodists and Presbyterians and Lutherans, they don't, they don't believe that, and historic Protestants don't believe it either. So Martin Luther didn't believe it, John Calvin didn't believe it, and of course the Catholic Church doesn't believe it either. What is this rapture that we don't believe in? Well, specifically... It's the idea that there are three comings of Jesus and not just two. And, I'm, and I, I mean like actual physical arrivals. I'm not talking about some spiritual coming into mm-hmm. our hearts. I mean like an actual arrival on planet Earth, beam me down, Scotty, that sort of thing. That there's three of them. And, of course, Scripture only knows two of them, and the Catholic faith only knows two. There's, of course, the first coming, which is the Incarnation. And then there's Christ coming on the clouds of heaven at the end of time. That's the third. That's the last coming. Mm. But the dispensationalists, they insert another one. They put one in the middle. And, uh, and what they allege is that in the middle, that Christ will come back on the clouds of heaven and that he will uh, sort of vacuum up, if you will, only quote-unquote true believers. Only quote-unquote true believers, which means fundamentalists like them, people who've had a born-again experience. And the, the purpose of this uh, alleged vacuuming these folks up is to get them out of planet Earth before God unleashes his wrath on the world. And then God will pour out his wrath on the world, and then Jesus comes back a third time, um, brings uh, the folks that he took to heaven with him, and he sets up shop in Jerusalem and establishes a Davidic uh, monarchy, a, a, a you know political monarchy from the city of Jerusalem, and reigns on David's throne uh, on earth for a thousand years, after which the end of the world comes. 
And during that thousand-year period, uh, the Jewish temple will be rebuilt, allegedly, in Jerusalem, and sacrifices and offerings will be re restarted. And so you will actually have fundamentalist farmers uh, in um, in the southeast that, that raise red heifers in the expectation that they will one day be shipped to Israel for sacrifice. Wow. I mean, they're, they're serious about this. And it, it explains, uh, in part the um the fundamentalist support for the for the modern nation state of israel because they believe that um that there will be a great battle at the end of time and that the fate of the nation state of israel is tied to this and of course jesus will ultimately become the king of that of that political entity so they're really invested in the and the in the geopolitics of the middle east so uh, all of that is unique to fundamentalists and catholics don't hold it but you said a couple things that Catholics do believe. Um, St. Paul teaches in 1 Thessalonians 4 that when Christ comes back, and of course he's talking about the only time he comes back, the one mm. time he comes back, yeah. that we will be caught up to meet Christ in the air. Now, not to be taken away for seven years and then brought back for a great, you know, after a great tribulation, but that caught up in the air. And, and the way that works, Paul says, and he teaches this in 1 Corinthians 15, is that at the return of Christ, there's a resurrection of the dead. And, uh, but it's not a revivification of a corpse. It's more transcendent than that, that the body will be transformed to become like Christ's resurrected body. And, of course, the resurrected body of Christ was related to, but fundamentally different from, the body that was put in the tomb. It's the same body but transformed and made into a spiritual body. That's the language that Paul uses, a spiritual right. body. And it has properties and qualities about it that no currently natural body would have. And, uh, and you know, among other things, we'll, we'll be inheritors of glory, whatever that will look like. Uh -huh. So there is a resurrection from the dead, and we will have a transformation of our physical body. And St. Paul also teaches in Romans 8 that the physical creation will be renewed, that the world that God made um, groans in expectation, longing for the sons of God to be revealed. So there, there is a sense in which there will be a renewed cosmos, um, and uh, including the resurrection from the dead, but it won't have the shape that fundamentalists think that it will have. Is that helpful for you, Miranda? Yes. Um, I was just wondering, where, where did they come up with this idea, though? Is oh. it just one man's idea? Yeah, so there, it's, it's quite convoluted the way they reason to this. Uh, but fundamentally, I believe it's born out of the way they read Scripture. They have a hermeneutic, which is to say a philosophy of biblical interpretation, that believes that every word of the Bible is literally true in its denotative sense. You know, the, 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 the plain subject-object-verb, you know, propositional sense of every, sent, of every word of Scripture is true, and it's all true in a kind of level way, so that the way you do theology, according to fundamentalists, is you just line up the propositional content of the Bible and arrange it into a kind of systematic order. Mm. And and that's clearly not the way the Bible functions, but that's the way they read sacred scripture. And if you do that, you run into problems, big problems, because the, the, the propositions don't cohere with one another. You can't actually arrange, you can't do systematic theology that way without running into inherent contradictions in the Bible. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the, the way they solve those apparent contradictions but fundamentalists, is they arrange history into s distinct dispensations. That's how they get the name dispensationalists. And they're, what they allege is that God functions differently in history at different periods of time. 
and that way they can have the Bible say one thing here and another thing there, and they can both be true, right, because they will say, well, they apply to different dispensations in Christian history. And specifically, there are passages of the Old Testament that speak about the coming kingdom of God when uh, the nations will bring tribute to Jerusalem, and a Davidic king will rule over David's throne, and, and there will be camels laden with gold and this kind of thing. And Christ emphatically did not bring that kind of kingdom when he came. Now, for a Catholic, we read those Old Testament passages and just say, well, they're just figurative, right? They're, we're not looking for a literal fulfillment where camels laden with gold are traipsing into Jerusalem. You know, I mean, that's not what we're looking for. And um, uh, we're looking for a different kind of kingdom. Christ said, my kingdom's not of this world. But the fundamentalist reads that. And he says, well, hey, the Bible said it, it must happen. And so if it didn't happen in Jesus' first coming, we've got to figure out for a way for it to happen in the second coming. Hmm. Moreover, moreover, they want to take Old Testament law very seriously, including temple sacrifices and all the rest of it. And again, since Christ's ethic um, is different, and in the way they read St. Paul, they read St. Paul in the, in the epistles as teaching yet another ethic different from Christ— they see the ministry of Christ itself is kind of problematic for the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And so they need to get the Christian church out of the way. They have to come up with a theory to remove Christians from, from history so that they can make room for this very Jewish, Hebraic, temple sacrifice view of the eschaton. Hmm. And so they move the Christians out of the way. That's where they get the idea of the rapture from. And then they bring them back at the end of time after Christ has instituted all this all this uh, temple sacrifice stuff. Wow. So it's, a, it's really convoluted, but it's born ultimately out of their fundamentalist view of the Bible. Miranda, thanks so much for your call. It is called a communion here on EWTN. Two lines open at the moment, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here's Aaron now, a first-time caller in Montana, listening on YouTube. Aaron, what's on your mind today, sir? Um, thank, first of all, uh, good afternoon. Thank you for uh, letting me ask some questions. I'm uh, in the process of uh, converting to the Church, and um, one of the issues that I've been wanting to talk about is the, um, the deuter deuterocanonical books. I've been debating um, a lot of uh, fundamentalists, and kind of interesting you mentioned uh, Darby and Schofield, uh, and, you know, people who are uh, also adherent to, like, the Baptist Convention of 1689. The one thing I keep bumping into is is that there's an argument. I think part of the problem is is, is that a lot of Protestants seem to have trouble with one canonical in particular, that Second Maccabees, because it talks about offering prayers for the dead. Um in, I know on Trent is when they, you know, they, they they officially affirmed it. But I also know that at Hippo in Carthage that they discussed the Deuterocanonical books. But the people I've been talking with are saying that Hippo and Carthage weren't really counting for the Church coming out and saying, you know, under the the seat of Peter, yes, these are legitimate books. That they, they they said that it's a provincial council and not. Council of the Church, and so I, I'm having a hard time understanding, you know, how that, if that's if that's actually how that works, how that 
invalidate the deuterocanonicals. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. I understand the, the uh, what you're getting at. So that, that doesn't invalidate the deuterocanonicals, and it's a gross misreading of the history. But here comes some music. i got to go to a break. Hang on, and we're going to get to this question right after the break. Sit tight, Aaron. We'll continue this on the other side. We'll also talk with Carolyn in New York. We do have uh, two lines open right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Hey, glad you're with us for Call to Communion here on EWTN. We do have one line open if you want to jump in here, 833 833- 288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, uh, a call that we received just before the break was from Aaron in Montana. Aaron was talking about uh, the uh, Council of Hippo, the Council of Carthage, regarding the canonization of the Deuterocanon. Yeah, exactly. And his specific question was, uh, he had been speaking to some Protestant friends of his that suggested that the councils of Hippo and Carthage presumably Rome as well, Mm -hmm. were not ecumenical councils. They were local synods, and therefore they weren't determinative for the the constitution of the canon, uh, which he alleges was not uh, firmed up, finalized until the Council of Trent. And he wants to suggest that that somehow poses a problem. Not Aaron, but his friends want to suggest that somehow poses a problem for the doctrine of the canon of the Bible, the Catholic doctrine of the canon of the Bible. And and I just think that's, uh, that's, uh, that's crazy talk, and I'll tell you why. So first of all, the idea that that the fact that you can place a timestamp on the definition of a dogma means that the dogma is somehow invalidated by that timestamp mm. makes absolutely no sense. I mean, yeah. we, uh, presumably your Protestant friends believe in the dogma of the Trinity, and I, presumably they would acknowledge that the Council of Nicaea defined the Trinity in 325. And if they know their history, they're going to know that before 325 that there were a lot of divergent theories about how the Trinity works. And, uh, and, and most of them were ultimately ruled heretical in 325, right? Does the existence of a diversity of opinion about the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Blessed Trinity prior to 325 render the decision of the Council invalid? No, it's in view of the controversy that there was held a Council to determine the question. All right. Now, sometimes you have something that is a dogmatic truth that is never rendered uh, in a conciliar verdict or not for a long time precisely because it's not controversial. Now, I'll give you a really clear example of that, uh, the veneration of saints. Um, if you were to go back to the 4th century and the 3rd century, you would find all kinds of arguments and disputes about whether Jesus was really God. But everybody on both sides of those disputes was venerating the bodies of the dead. So the practice of venerating saints was ubiquitous. Yeah. And and never called and not called into controversy. Um, and therefore, it, it, there was no need to define it in the council until the Protestants began to question it in the 16th century, and the Council of Trent defined it. All right. Okay. And and the the ubiquity of the doctrine was something that was underscored by the Church Fathers. So Jerome, speaking about the veneration of the dead. Uh, wrote uh, the rhetorical question in Against Vigilantius, does the Bishop of Rome do wrong when he offers the holy sacrifice of the Mass over the bones of Peter and Paul, and not the Bishop of Rome only, but all the bishops throughout the world, acknowledging that this was a universal practice? Um, So you can know something's a doctrine of the Church by the fact that, you know, it is the practice of the Church, 
right, mm-hmm. without having a, a counsel in consequence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- there, there were disputes about the content of the canon in the first four centuries. And some of the, di- some of the books that were disputed were New Testament books that we currently consider canonical. Like Revelation, yeah. or Jude, or Second and Third John, or Second Peter, mm-hmm. or the Book of Hebrews. I mean, uh, these uh, uh, anti-legumina of the New Testament were were called into question. Does that mean we should reject them today? Do your Protestant friends want to throw out the Book of Revelation because it was disputed in the early centuries? Um, but uh, but many doctors of the Church and ancient Christian thinkers of great note and renown. We're, we're citing the deuterocanonical text of the Old Testament. I mean, I could, I could read you a list, but that'd be a bit pedantic. But they include <laughs> people like Augustine, um, Origen, Cyprian, Hippolytus. I mean, you name them, and they read their books. They, they're, they're exegetically using these texts in their homiletical material and in their theologizing. And Augustine specifically, in his book on Christian doctrine, when he talks about whether or not Christians should advert to the Hebrew or the Greek canon— says specifically we should advert to the Greek canon because it is the ecclesiastical version. This is the one that the Church uses. And, of course, the New Testament quotes from the Deuterocanonicals and alludes to them. And, again, it would be pedantic to list them, but you can do any kind of Google search and this New Testament allusions to the Deuterocanonicals, and you'll find, you know, dozens of them. All right. So so that's, that's, um, there you have it. Now, eventually, of course, Trent did define the dogma of the canon, Precisely because it had been called into question again by the Protestants. But that's why they did it at Trent, because up until that point, you could freely cite and read and de- meditate upon the Deuterocanonicals and employ it in your theological uh, speculations. And when the Protestants said, well, you shouldn't do that, Trent said, well, we're going to go with the tradition of the Church on this one. There you go. Aaron, thanks so much for your call. Hey, our friends in Cleveland need to hear from you next week. Uh, the wonderful station, AM 1260, The Rock, airing their 2023 Fall Pledge Drive. That'll be next Wednesday through Friday. So if you're listening in Cleveland or anywhere, please support your EWTN Catholic radio station. That's a great station, AM 1260, The Rock. Let's go now to Carolyn in New York, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hello, Carolyn. What's on your mind today? Hello, Dr. Anders. Um, Hi. I'll try to make this quick. Um, I've been avoiding the reports about the Synod, just praying for the Holy Spirit, until yesterday when I read the answers to the dubia about potential for blessing same-sex marriages. And I'm just calling, you can summarize things so well. Um, I don't see how that could really help us evangelizing. Um, It seems like a lot of converts came into the Church when they saw the Church, despite opposition, was sticking to the truth. And it seems sort of hypocritical. Uh, we'll bless this, but we won't give you marriage. And my other part is, couldn't cohabitating couples also present themselves? Um, yeah, Just thanks. I, I really appreciate the question and understand it. So first of all, uh, I you know I, I share your befuddlement to a certain extent, and I and I don't I don't want to get ahead of the Pope or the or the Synod and start like calling out you know my settled opinion on something that hasn't really been announced, right? And so I, I know a lot. there's been a lot of hay that's been made in the last week over the Pope's response to the recent uh, dubia, the five questions the Cardinals put to him. And, uh, and I, I think some of it's quite a bit reactionary. I think there are folks that, that have an axe to grind with Pope Francis, and they want to read everything in the most uncharitable light possible. Um, and, uh, and 
I've read the Pope's response to the five dubia questions, and he he. I've I've read commentary that says, oh well, the Pope has authorized the blessing of same-sex unions, and I I don't see that in the text. Right? I don't I don't see that in the text. I I understand how someone could construe it that way. I don't know what what apostolic exhortation he will write after the Senate. We have to wait and find out. But whatever he says, I'm sure that there are people who are going to misconstrue his words for their own ideological purposes. I think there are probably people on the left and the right who will misconstrue Pope Francis to make him say what they find rhetorically useful for him to have said. Okay. Now, that being the case, I will give you what I think is going on, and I, I, I'm very much open to correction. The Pope has said, he's repeated the consistent teaching of the Church, that there is a clear conception of marriage in the Catholic faith, exclusive, stable, and indissoluble union between a man and a woman, naturally opening to the begetting of children, and only that is called a marriage. And that in consequence, the Church should avoid any kind of right, any kind of right or sacramental that could contradict that conviction and give the impression that something is marriage that's not recognized as marriage. All right? Um, at the same time, the Pope recognizes that there are kinds of unions that reflect, shall we say, uh, the truth of marriage in a partial and analogous way. And that that might seem squirrely and and uh, unfair to some people, but but let me let me spell out to you where I think that there is some sense in that position. Um you know, when people call my show and they say, Anders, can I attend the invalid wedding of my brother and soon to be sister in law, or as it were, sister in law? Mm hmm. And they call me and say, can I attend the wedding of my brother and his boyfriend? I don't answer those questions the same way. Now, from the Catholic Church's perspective, they are fundamentally different from both of those are invalid. Neither one of them is a valid marriage. But it's clear to me that one of them reflects the reality of marriage in a partial and analogous way that's much closer to the reality of the thing and where the distance to get that recognized as a valid marriage and hopefully a sacramental one is much less and where you know the ignorance of the spouses and the need for education and and you know is there a kind of evidence in the nature of the union invalid though it is of of, a, of a, the desire to realize the goods of natural marriage and procreation and family it seems pretty evident, right? And uh, and could I take that, or could a priest take that and work with that pastorally to bring those people along to a full embrace of the Catholic teaching about marriage? Yeah, I, I can see how you could do that. And pastorally, you know, I want to be open to that possibility and try to nurture that relationship to its to its natural sacramental fulfillment. I can't do that with a gay marriage. Like, there is, there is no path where I can take a gay marriage and, and turn it into a valid sacramental union. Whereas I can do that in the case of an invalid union between a man and a woman. Neither one of them is a valid marriage. But the category of reflecting the reality of marriage in a partial and analogous way seems to be pertinent here, seems to make sense. Mm -hmm. Okay? Um, and... Uh, and 
there's there's the, the according to the teaching of the Catholic Church, the sexual union of of two same sex people is always intrinsically immoral. That's always intrinsically immoral. Um, but the but the sort of personal care and solicitude that two same-sex people might have for one another as human beings is not intrinsically immoral. And if I'm a pastor, or I'm an evangelist, or I'm a missionary, and I'm operating in a culture that has utterly rejected the church's moral catechesis, Mm -hmm. and so you have people that are alienated from the church Mm -hmm. because of her teaching on sexuality and are unwilling to consider the Catholic faith, the Pope's position, and he says this explicitly, is to evangelize those people and bring them into the full embrace of the Catholic faith, we have to do more than simply repeat the prohibition. There, you have to find some point of contact with people to make them willing to hear the truth of the gospel. And I think the Pope's fairly ambiguous on what that pastoral outreach has to look like. And when he speaks about blessings, he says, if someone approaches the church for a blessing, they're expressing a desire for union with God. And that in itself is something that I can work with. I may not be able to bless the union, but the desire for blessing, the desire for grace, the desire for intimacy with God, I've got to find a way pastorally to follow up on that, to bring people along gradually in the church's moral catechesis, to bring them into full conformity with the church's moral teaching. Now, that's all very nuanced. Are there people who are going to read the Pope's words? Are there, are there priests in Germany, for example, they're going to line, you know, throw out the rainbow flag and line out and have blessing of the pets on one day and blessing of the gay marriages on the next. And it's like, line up, buddy. We're going to just bless away. You know it's going to happen. I mean, you know that, that there's some who are going to read him that way. Just like there are going to be traditionalist reactionaries who want to find fault with the Pope in the American right, who are also going to read the Pope the same way so they can avoid listening to the constructive things he has to say. My view is that I don't know what the Pope ultimately intends to do, but I but he is the Bishop of Rome, and I owe him a a duty of the religious submission of mind and will. Uh, I recognize that he doesn't always speak precisely, but my obligation is to try to find the wisdom in what the Pope has to say without prejudging the case. We do appreciate your call. Thanks. Thanks so much for it. It is called a communion here on EWTN Radio. Hey, be sure to join us for Scripture and Tradition. That's coming up Sunday afternoon at 1 p.m. Eastern here on EWTN Radio. This week, Father Mitch looks at how Judas tried to reduce his, tried to reduce Jesus's authority to make his act of betrayal easier to commit. And Father Mitch compares it to certain corrupt clergy who justify their own betrayal of the Good Shepherd and their own flocks. Should be a fascinating program coming up uh, Sunday afternoon, 1 p.m. Eastern, only on EWTN Radio. Great program, Scripture and Tradition. I love the way how Father Mitch uh, ties in what was written thousands of years ago with what's going on even today. Let's go now to Ryan in Washington, Missouri, listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hello, Ryan. What's on your mind today? Hi there. Uh Appreciate your show. Uh, listening to it, um, I I am a I I have never claimed a denomination. Uh, I had an encounter with Jesus Christ when I was 21, and I simply follow the scripture. You know that says you must be born again, and I believe you have to have a actual encounter with Jesus. Uh, I don't believe you can. And and there's a lot of you know 
what you call fan, fundamentalist churches. I don't really like that word, but uh, that actually, um, you know, they have confirmation classes. They have, you know, and, and they'll tell you, you know, go forward, say a few words, you know, get dunked in a tank and you're saved. And I, I reject any formulation like that because the Bible doesn't, uh, it says those who cry out to the Lord will be saved. And if you if you go forward and you rehearse a few words, uh, you're not saved. Um, and I, I think we need to start there. You know, we can disagree and agree on the other issues, such as end times, rapture. I don't believe in a rapture either, by the way. I, I reject the notion that all uh, fundamentalists uh, believe the same way. There's, you know, thousands of different churches out there, many of which I reject. Uh, like I say, I haven't found a church yet, including the Catholic Church, that actually follows all of Scripture. I'll give you an example, the gifts of the Spirit in Second Corinthians 13. Uh, the Baptists say, well, that was for yesterday. Those don't exist now. The uh, Pentecostals, they'll acknowledge the gifts, and yet uh, they always seem to focus on tongues and interpretation of tongues. And yet when I prophesied uh, before 9-11 that gay marriage would start the second uh, civil war, and and hate speech, they threw, uh, more or less threw me out of the church. And yet prophecy is considered the greater gift there. So how can I help you, Ryan? Uh, I, my best friend is Catholic, and he's also what they call charismatic. Uh, he, he believes in the gifts of the Spirit. All right. So where does the Catholic... First of all... Um, I would prefer that you, you know, recognize that there's multiple different uh, fundamental churches, and I, I would rather you call it evangel uh, evangelistic churches. Okay, all right. Let me let me speak to both of those issues, and I really appreciate the call. So, first of all, I, I completely agree with you that there is a lot of diversity among Protestant groups. There's a lot of diversity among fundamentalist groups. There's diversity among evangelical groups. Uh, and as I'm sure you're aware, modern evangelicalism emerged as a kind of reaction against uh, fundamentalism. And within fundamentalism, you have you have like fundamentalists that practice first degree separation, fundamentalists that practice second degree separation, um, and uh, and uh, I mean all kinds of variations. So you're you're absolutely right about that. I mean, I uh, I, I myself am a graduate of Wheaton College, which sometimes is characterized as a fundamentalist school, sometimes characterized as an evangelical school. But the founder of the school, Jonathan Blanchard, was a post-millennialist. And the uh, school eventually settled on a, on a pre-millennialist um, adoptional statement and required uh, everybody to subscribe to that. One of the other things they did is they required all the faculty to subscribe to a pledge that they would abstain from alcohol. And, uh, and dancing, by the way. And so we used to get a kick out of it when I was a student there because we said, you know, at Wheaton College, neither the founder of the school nor the founder of the religion would be allowed to teach there. The founder, <laughs> because he wasn't a premillennialist. Yeah. The founder of the school, because he was a postmillennialist. And Jesus Christ, because he drank alcohol. So wow. like, I'm, I'm keenly aware of the diversity of belief. <laughs> um, and I acknowledge it. And I think when I was talking about the rapture earlier in the show, I, I stated that it is a minority of Protestants that believe that. I think I said that explicitly more than once. It's, it's typically fundamentalists that have been influenced by the Schofield Reference Bible. 
um, and maybe Dallas Theological Seminary and Moody Bible Institute, but m- most Protestants don't believe that. So I, I acknowledge that. Um, you know, the, the terminology, fundamentalist and evangelical, have pretty specific meanings in, in, uh, in uh, Christian historiography. And fundamentalists can refer to a particular view of the Bible, but it can also refer to refer to a particular sort of sociological grouping um, that's distinct from evangelicalism. And so I, I do sometimes use the word in more than one sense. Um, but when it comes to the Catholic position on the gifts of the Spirit, the Catholic Church teaches that the gifts of the Spirit are valid, but not normative, which is exactly what Paul says. They're valid and not normative. Um, you made the claim that you possess the gift of prophecy. I'm not able to evaluate that claim. Um, the fact that you predict something that then comes to pass, to my mind, is, is not adequate proof that you have that gift, but maybe you do. Um, uh, but we certainly have people in the Catholic Church through the centuries that have had the gift, and I, really it's less to do, in my view, with predicting the future and more with speaking the Word of God in an authoritative way, sort of spirit-empowered way. And, uh, you know, I think, for example, there's a Catholic saint named Catherine of Siena who, to my way of looking at it, I mean, like the Old Testament prophetess Deborah didn't have anything on Catherine of Siena. I mean, she (laughs) operated in exactly the same kind of spirit of someone who would speak the word of God with boldness to folks in power who would who would do what she said. I mean, her 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 charisma, her persona was so overwhelming and her degree of holiness that she could she literally moved kings, emperors, and popes, and she was basically a nobody except for this particular charism. And there are others in Catholic faith that have operated the same way. Saint Dominic, for example, Saint Francis, um, and uh, and the other gifts of the Spirit as well are also in evidence in Catholic history. The, the difference between the Catholic Church and the modern charismatic movement is the modern charismatic movement considers these gifts to be really normative uh, for use in Christian worship and that if you're not evidencing them on a regular basis in the context of the liturgy, that you're somehow deficient. Uh, and it seems to me, this is my judgment, to, to get the, the, the hierarchical values wrong. In other words, it, it places the manifestation of these gifts, in my judgment, uh, above uh, uh, the virtues of faith, right? And I think that's problematic. But, but in terms of do we allow them? Yes, Catholic Church allows them and encourages them. Ryan, thanks so much for your call. Keep listening to Covenant Network. It is a great station right there where you live. Let's go now to, uh, Ver- let's go to Michael, a first-time caller in Denver, listening on, click, a Catholic Radio Network. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, my question is going to seem a little more simplistic than uh, some of the topics you've been discussing, but um, there's always been a contradiction, at least for me, between God forgives and forgets sins if you truly repent, yet at the end of time we have to give an account of ourselves. Now, I understand forgive and not forget, but I think it's a little deeper than that. But can you just clear it up so I feel more comfortable about it? Absolutely. So here's a mistake that some people make. They think of the final judgment or the particular judgment as an accounting the way that an IRS agent is going to come look over your books and add up the debits and the credits. That's not the position. That's not the position. If you have repented for your sins and done penance and received forgiveness, then those are not going to be brought up. And one of the verdicts that will be pronounced on the Day of Judgment is, well done, good and faithful servant. That's a judgment. Yeah. Right? But it's a yeah. very positive judgment. Like, you win, first place, gold, medal. That's Yay. a judgment, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so the purpose of the final judgment is to manifest God's judgment publicly so that the, the Christ and the saints will be vindicated 
in the sphere in which they were previously dishonored. Um, so, you know, think about the, the, the martyrs of the, of the second and third century and those who persecuted them and put them to death. On the last day, they'll all be there. And the ones that mocked the church and put the martyrs to death will be faced with the knowledge that, oops, I was on the wrong side of that one. Yeah. And the martyrs who died these ignominious deaths will be vindicated, and the verdict will be, well done, good and faithful servant. So you, you don't have to worry about the, you know, the, the recitation of your laundry list of past indiscretions. If they're repented for and you've done penance for them, then maybe the only verdict you get is, well done, good and faithful servant. Hopefully so. Michael, thanks so much for your call. Veronica is in South Dakota and listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Veronica, we have about a minute left. What's on your mind today? Um, excuse me, I'm so sorry. That's okay. What's up? What's up today? Dr. Landers, I wanted to, I have to be cremated because we can't afford a casket. And because of that, and I'm Catholic, been Catholic all my life, um, will I get a glorified body? Thank you so much. I really appreciate the question. Veronica, do you think that God will know where the pieces have gone? <laughs> <laughs> In a Catholic cemetery in Texas. That's right. God will know. He'll know where the pieces are. He'll know where the parts are, and he'll know how to put them back together. He puts you together for the first time. Yes. He can put you together the second time. Not a problem. Not a problem. You know, there were there were theologians in the Middle Ages in the scholastic period that used to speculate about just this kind of thing. They had all kinds of crazy questions. They'd be like, you know, if I were burned at the stake, what do I get on the last day? If I got eaten by a shark and, you know, I got turned into shark flesh, what happens if... And, uh, and the, the position they took was that, you know, if, if there's continuity between the dead body and the resurrected body, all, all God really needs to work with is a particle, yeah. you know, and he can, he can resurrect you from that. So, yeah, you're fine. You're fine. Just the important thing is to die in the state of grace. Yes, indeed. Veronica, thanks so much for your call. Glad we could uh, get it in at there at the last minute. Dr. David Andrews, have a great weekend. Thanks, Tom. We hope everybody has a great weekend. We're looking forward to our next visit. Hopefully that'll be on Monday. We do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN, 2 p.m. for the Encore, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, that is, 2 p.m. for the live show, 11 p.m. for the Encore, which is 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Until our next visit, this is Tom Price along with Dr. David Andrews. Hey, thanks for joining us. Have that great weekend. We'll see you Monday here on EWTN's Call to Communion. God bless.